Well, I've been looking forward to this all summer long. Uh, when uh, Pastor Elwert invited me to uh, be part of the summer Bible conference, uh, our summer was somewhat up in the air in terms of our schedule. So I said, well, how late does the conference go? And he said, well, until the end of August. And I said, well, I, I know I'll be in town at the end of August because seminary will have started. And uh, so I picked this slot with confidence that uh, that would work out. So I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, the last time I think I was here was at uh, Pastor Elwert's ordination. I don't know how long ago that was. It was it three years ago? Wow. It didn't seem like it was that long ago. I would have said maybe a year or so. Um, did, do any of you remember the, the ordination service three years ago? Do you remember it? Yeah. Were most of you here, I I assume? All right. Uh, The reason I know I was there, because a picture appeared on Facebook. And that gives me an opportunity to say a couple of things about, if anyone is taking pictures, I don't know if they take pictures on Wednesday evening, but I do have two requests if I ever have my picture taken. And, And the first is, if you could please uh, take a picture when I'm standing straight up and not slouching. And, and the reason is because they do appear on Facebook and my wife will see it. And she'll say, honey, I've asked you to stand up straight when you're talking. And, and I said, you know, they, I don't know what, how that happened. I, and, and that... I say that because I was kind of slouching at uh, Jacob's uh, uh, ordination service. So that's, that's my request number one. Uh, the second request, likened to the first, is that uh, I don't know what my best side is. I, I don't. I, I'm not sure I have a best side. But, but I'm pretty sure that the top of my head isn't my best side. So if I'm looking down at my notes, don't take my picture. Because that might appear on Facebook, and my wife will say, Honey, I, I, I'd encourage you to look at your audience when you're talking. So, Are we all down with that? Okay. Uh, my handout you have in front of you, the judgment seat of Christ, a key incentive for faithful service. And that's how the Lord has used it in my life. And I trust... Uh, following our challenge from God's Word this evening, that you'll be stirred in your soul to be a faithful servant of the Most High God, knowing that you, like all of us, will give an account of ourselves before our Lord when He returns. So the judgment seat of Christ, a key incentive for faithful service, I say on two occasions, the expression, the judgment seat of Christ, or the judgment seat of God, is found describing Christians standing before Christ, following the rapture. I've changed some wording here, so mine might be slightly different than yours. Following the rapture and being held accountable for their lives. Christians standing before Christ at the Bema seat, 
being held accountable for our lives. I cite the two passages there, or I list them, I should say. Now, a number of questions are raised with these and related verses, which describe the judgment of believers. What is this judgment? And how is it harmonized with other texts which teach, which clearly teach that believers will never face God's condemnation and judgment? The name judgment seat comes from the word bima, referring to a seat on a raised step or platform located in a public area within a city. The civil magistrates would sit on such a seat when performing their judicial duties. Now, you're familiar with this seat if you've read the Gospel accounts. I say that notice. Most of the New Testament references to this seat, the Bema seat, occur where an individual is brought before a ruling authority for the judging of some charge. Pilate, for example, sat on this seat when he tried our Lord. He sat on the Bema seat for his judicial authority when he tried our Lord. Now, there are two views that are popular on what precisely will take place at this judgment, the Bema seat of Christ, where you and I will stand, one day we'll stand. Two popular views, the first one. Some view the judgment seat of Christ as a place of intense sorrow and shame. A place of terror. The believer's sins are revealed publicly and the believer is punished for those sins not confessed or properly dealt with in this life. In fact, I've heard it on more than one occasion as if it were a giant screen on which your life is portrayed day after day in front of all of the rest of the host of the saints standing there. And of course, all your sins are exposed. And uh, for those sins not confessed or not properly taken care of in this life, there's punishment. The other popular view, I say others take the opposite position, viewing this as a place of no remorse or shame, but only of rejoicing. Christ strictly dispenses rewards and every believer receives at least some recognition for service. Now, if those are the two options, I know which one I'm going to choose. <laughs> I'm going for the second option. I don't know about you, but that's the one I'm going for. But we want to look at what the Word of God says about the judgment seat of Christ and why is it such a key incentive for faithful service for the, for the redeemed. Key text. There are three passages in the New Testament that directly discuss the judgment seat of Christ. Three texts. Romans 14. Uh, let's pick it up with verse 10 in Romans 14. That's uh, right at the beginning there. But you, Paul writes, why do you judge your brother? Or you again? Why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And then drop down to verse 12. I know it's very fine print, but it's there. So then, Paul writes, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Each one of us, Paul writes. 
the second text, 1 Corinthians 3. Let's pick it up with verse, uh, verse 12, about three lines down. Paul writes, Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will see, receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. <clears throat> the third passage, Second Corinthians chapter 5 uh, let's pick it up at verse 9. It's about halfway down. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or or bad. Now, I want to cover some key points. Those are the key passages. I want to just go through some key points here about what will take place at the judgment seat of Christ according to God's Word. So, the first question I want to ask and answer is, who is judged? Who stands before Christ at the judgment seat of the Lord? I say here, according to the above, this judgment is specifically for Christians. That is, for believers in the body of Christ. Writing to the church at Corinth, Paul says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The expression all in this context refers to Paul and his readers. That is, to believers as members of Christ's body, the church. Now, other judgments are mentioned in God's Word. But Christians are not involved in these. Two such examples. examples: Matthew 25, which speaks of Christ judging the nations at the end of the tribulation period. Now, we all hold that you and I are going to be raptured prior to the tribulation. Well, at the end of the tribulation, according to Daniel, well, according to Matthew 25, pardon me, at the end of the tribulation, Matthew 25, there's going to be a judgment. Now, our Lord describes it in Matthew 25 as a judgment between the sheep and the goats. Now, I think He refers to it as the sheep and goat nations, but really, it's a judgment of the sheep and goats within the nations. In other words, at the end of the tribulation, all those who survive the slaughter of Antichrist and his army. All who survive that are going to stand before the Lord, Matthew 25, and, and, and the Lord is going to separate. The goats, referring to unbelievers, will be taken out by death. The sheep, referring to believers, will be allowed to remain and enter the kingdom that the Lord will establish at that, at that moment. You and I are not going to be involved in that judgment. That's Matthew 25. Uh, the other judgment I say here 
Revelation 20, which speaks of the judgment of unbelievers at the great white throne of God. Now, this judgment takes place at the end of the millennial kingdom, according to Revelation chapter 20. And God is going to judge at the end of our Lord's 1,000-year reign. He's going to judge unbelievers and assign them to the lake of fire. You and I will not be involved in that judgment. So, who's to be judged? It's believers in the body of Christ. It takes place after the rapture. There are other judgments mentioned, but you and I are not going to be involved in those. So, when does this judgment take place more precisely? This judgment takes place in connection with the Lord's return. In 1 Corinthians 3.13, the judgment of believers is associated with the day. This, is, this expression is an abbreviation of the longer expression, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, found in Paul and elsewhere to describe events surrounding the second coming of Christ. Specifically, the judgment seat of Christ as part of the day of the Lord follows the rapture of the church. It occurs while believers are in heaven with Christ. And before Christ returns to the earth at the end of the tribulation to establish his, to establish his kingdom. So, I understand from this passage and others in the New Testament that following the rapture, following the rapture, the Lord is going to begin what in Scripture is referred to the tribulation judgments on the earth. It's also referred to as the day of the Lord judgments. But you and I have been raptured, taken up to the third heavens prior to that time. So while our Lord is pouring out judgments upon the earth for a period of seven years, you and I are in the third heavens with our Savior at the Bema Seat of Christ. That's precisely when it takes place. Now, John 14 tells us something about that. Our Lord says, you know, I, I'm going to the Father's house and uh, to prepare a place for you. And when I return, I will gather you so that where I am, you may be also. What he's referring to is going to the third heavens to prepare a place for them in the third heavens. And he's going to come back and take us there at the rapture. Well, that's take, that takes place after the rapture in the third heavens while the Lord is pouring out judgment upon the earth for a period of seven years called the tribulation judgments. That's when the Bema Seat of Christ takes place. It's in the third heavens. It's during the tribulation judgments on earth. This then is distinct from the judgment of Old Testament believers, which according to Daniel 12 takes place in connection with their resurrection at the end of the tribulation. All right, what is judged? This judgment involves the evaluation of believers' works. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul states that it is our works that are to be examined, and in particular, our works performed as co-laborers with Christ, as Christian servants. Furthermore, these works are judged by Christ to determine whether they are good or evil. That is, whether they are those that Christ can approve gold, silver, precious stones, or not approve wood, 
pay straw. Now you may ask me, you know, what is a good work? If our works are going to be judged by our Lord at the Bema seat, what is a good work? How do we define a good work? Well, I, I give you a definition here. It may be assumed as one that is done in obedience to God's Word and motivated by faith and love toward God. So that's my de- definition of a good work. If, if you were to ask me tonight, what is a good, where does the Bible say a good work is? I would say a good work is anything that you and I do in obedience to God's Word, motivated out of love and faith toward God. Now, my proof text for that is a very familiar passage. It's James chapter 2. You see it there and verse 21. You may turn there if you like. I'm just going to uh, reference it. James asked the question, Was not Abraham justified by works when he had offered Isaac upon the altar? And the question that James asks, the answer is intended is yes. God declared Abraham just. It's in Genesis chapter 22. I think it's 22. Is it 22? 22? Genesis 22. And God declares him just. Now, it's not when Abraham was justified. That takes place according to Genesis 15 verse 6. Much earlier than that. When, when Abraham believed God and God's promises. But there was a subsequent time when, according to Genesis 22, God did declare Abraham a just individual based on his work in the offering of Isaac. So let's think about that for just a moment. I don't know if you've ever asked this question. But, you know, why did Abraham attempt to sacrifice Isaac? <laughs> Have you ever asked that question? This is Isaac. This, this was his son. This is, the, this is the son that God had promised to Abraham. So the question is asked, Abraham, why would you offer Isaac your son? And you know the answer to the question is, God commanded him. In other words, what Abraham was doing was an obedience to God's word. Would you agree with me? It was an obedience to God's word. But that's not the entirety of our definition. It's something that you and I do in obedience to God's Word, motivated out of love and faith toward God. Did Abraham love Isaac? Absolutely. Again, this was the son that he had through Sarah. It was the son of promise. This is the son that Abraham had longed for. This is the son that Abraham had prayed for. This is the son that God had promised to Abraham. To ask the question, did Abraham love Isaac? Obviously, Abraham loved Isaac, as every parent here loves their son or daughter. So the question is, Abraham, why would you offer Isaac? You love Isaac. And what's the answer? You know the answer as well. Whom did Abraham love more? He loved Isaac. He loved Isaac in the depths of his heart. But he loved God more. In fact, God says that in Genesis 22. He loved God supremely. 
even more than he loved his son Isaac. A good work is anything that you and I do in obedience to God's Word, motivated out of our love for God because He has first loved us. Abraham loved God. But I also said that it's also motivated not only by love toward God, but also faith in God. Where where does that plug in? Well, the, the author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham was absolutely convinced. I want you to follow this now. Abraham was absolutely convinced that were Isaac to die as a sacrifice on the altar, and Abraham was fully convinced that that's what would take place. That God had commanded him to go to this location, set up the altar, bind Isaac, put him on the altar, take his knife, and sacrifice Isaac on that altar. Abraham was absolutely convinced that were Isaac to die, and he anticipated that Isaac, in fact, would die, that God would have to raise him from the dead. Why? Because it was in Isaac that God had promised Abraham that all his promises were going to be fulfilled. It was in Isaac and in Isaac's descendants. And at that point, Isaac didn't have those descendants. So Abraham was fully convinced, according to the author of Hebrews, that God would raise him from the dead. So let me ask the question. Was Abraham also motivated by faith in God and what he was doing? Yes, he was. Absolutely motivated by faith. In fact, the author of Hebrews says, without faith, what? It's impossible to please God. I think it's the author of Hebrews that says that. Cut me a little slack, all right? (laughs) So a good work is anything that you and I do in obedience to God's Word, motivated out of faith, Faith and love toward God. That's a good work. That is a good work. That is a classic definition, according to Scripture, of a good work. Let's go on. Number four. 1 Corinthians 3 specifically describes the evaluation of vocational ministers. We just cited 1 Corinthians 3. And I say, well, really, the context there is describing vocational ministers like Pastor Jacob. However, the language Paul uses appears intentionally broad when talking about the evaluation of vocational ministers. Furthermore, Paul picks up that same theme, evaluation, in 2 Corinthians 5 and applies this evaluation to all of his readers as believers in the body of Christ. In other words, whatever Paul is writing about vocational ministers having their works evaluated, Paul picks up that thought and in 2 Corinthians 5 says that all of us are going to experience that evaluation. So what is judged? It is our works. Well, why does Christ judge Christians? Well, the purpose of this judgment is to issue rewards for service. Again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, if anyone's work endures, he will receive a reward. As such, the judgment seat of Christ does not directly address the believer's sin though it is understood that sin is the reason why a specific work would be counted worthless. Neither does this judgment place in jeopardy the salvation of the the individual. In the very next verse, Paul states that if the individual's works are shown to be worthless, he himself will still be saved. Quote, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, 
but he himself will be saved. It is his works that are burned. And the loss that he suffers must refer to the loss of reward that would otherwise have been his. He is said to be saved yet as by fire, meaning his ultimate salvation is accompanied by the loss of reward. Now, I have one clarification to make, and that's the very next paragraph. Let's turn there. In the above passage, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul overstates his point to underscore the security of the believer. When Paul says, if his works are burned up, nevertheless, he himself shall be saved. Well, he's overstating the case to underscore the absolute security of a true believer. But what's my point? And what's Paul's point? Well, even that individual in 1 Corinthians 3, I'm assuming, must have some good works when he stands before our Lord. Let's let's notice what I say here. From the larger context, it is assumed that there will be some spiritual fruit in the life of even this individual that Paul is describing, if he be truly saved. Why do I say that? Let's go back to James then. James asked this question. If someone says he has faith and has no works, James asked, can that faith save him? I want you to think about this. The way James asks that question, the answer is no. Now, James is not saying, can faith save? He's not saying that. James is saying, can that faith save him? What faith? A faith without works. That's what James is saying. In other words, James is saying a faith that does not produce good works is not a saving faith. Look what I say here. At the same time, good works are the evidence of salvation, not a condition for salvation. That's James's point. James is not saying unless he has faith plus works, he cannot be saved. What James is saying is that a true saving faith will produce good works. And these works are the evidence of salvation. They're not the condition for salvation. Notice what I say at the end. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any and all works. But the point that James is making, we can't miss it, is that true saving faith, a faith that believes the gospel and receives God's gracious gift of salvation, eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. That grace of God in the gospel is a transforming power that will change the life of the individual who receives it. And James's point is that the evidence of that transforming power of the gospel will be seen in good works. In good works. Now, I'm going to emphasize it again. If you only remember one thing tonight, please remember this. (laughs) Works are not a condition for salvation. They are not. They are the evidence, the evidence of the transforming power of the gospel and God's grace in salvation. The evidence, not the condition. All right. Now, Believe it or not, there are still some questions remaining. (laughs) You're you're thinking, 
Well, I thought you covered them all. Well, I got a few more here. What about unconfessed sins in this life? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. (laughs) It cannot be stressed too strongly that the believer's sins, past, present, future, have once for all been forgiven at the moment of salvation. And the believer will never face eternal condemnation. At the moment, at the moment of salvation, at the very moment of salvation, God forgives us of all of our sins, past, present, and future, and clothes us with the righteousness of His Son. That's called justification. Justification. The forgiveness of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. However, unconfessed sin does affect the believer, but it is the believer's relationship with God in this life. Such unconfessed sin hinders the believer's effectiveness as the Lord's servant and brings divine chastisement that impacts the believer's joy. So how how does unconfessed sin affect my life? Well, it affects my service for the Lord. And it brings chastisement. That's how it affects my relationship. Let's go on. Let's unpack that a bit. In order to restore unhindered relate, an unhindered relationship with God, believers must sincerely confess their sins to God. Included in this confession is the acknowledging of guilt, the exercising of repentance, and the seeking of divine forgiveness. Well, so when John says, if you will confess your sins... He is faithful and just to cleanse you from your sins, forgive your sins, and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Confession there involves, I'm acknowledging before God that I am guilty. I'm repenting. And I'm seeking God's forgiveness. That's what John means when he says, if you confess your sins. I've got a passage here from Proverbs that builds that uh, thought. God has promised to cleanse and forgive the believer who sincerely confesses sin, thereby removing any obstacles to effective service and blessing. Such sins committed by believers should never be taken lightly. They are those for which Christ died. And if unconfessed, they subject the believer to divine chastisement in this life and in this life alone. Nevertheless, I'm going to drive this point home. The believer will never face Eternal condemnation and punishment. Now, let me see if I can illustrate. The night our Lord was betrayed, He took a a bowl of water and a piece of cloth. Do you all remember that? And He starts washing the disciples' feet. Does everyone recall that story? And He comes to Peter. And Peter says, Just a minute, Lord. I should be doing that for you. Now, I want you to notice the Lord's words. He says, no, Peter. He says, I'm doing this for you. In fact, I must do this for you. And then Peter says, well, if you're going to do that, if you must do it, Lord, and if you must do it for me, let's let's get the whole body covered. And here's the Lord's response. He says, Peter, that's already taken place. When you believed... And we're, and we're saved, justified, forgiven. 
Your whole body was cleansed. That's the point the Lord is making. Your whole body was cleansed. And here's the thought then. But Peter, as my servant, no longer as one who has been estranged from God, you have been fully reconciled to God. You are a member of God's family. Your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. But as my servant, on this sin-cursed world, as you walk about, you're going to kick up the dust of defilement, of, of, of sinful activity. And my role, Peter, is what the Lord is saying, is to cleanse your feet as your Savior so that you might be unhindered in your service for me and not be under my chastising correction. Maybe I can illustrate this way. Pastor Jacob mentioned I've got two sons. When they were growing up and they would disobey me, they didn't stop becoming they didn't stop being my sons, did they? They were my sons. Better for better or for worse, they were my sons. Now, at that point they became my disobedient sons, and as a father I had to correct them, but I corrected them as my sons. They were my sons. And whatever they did, they were still my sons. Maybe that will help. Let's go on. Are there levels of blessing in heaven? A number of passages support the conclusion that there are levels of punishment in hell. Do you remember what the Lord says in Matthew 11? Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. For it will be, it will be, is it easier? Was it? Is it better? Something like that. It will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you on the day of judgment. Now, he's not saying, well, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to get off with a, a free pass. He's not saying that. I mean, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah in this life because of their horrific sin and they're going to be judged at the great white throne because of their horrific sin. What our Lord was saying is that the citizens of Bethsaida and Chorazin are even facing a greater judgment. And why is that? Because the Lord Himself had been in their presence. Sodom and Gomorrah did not have that privilege. The Lord Himself had performed miracles. Sodom and Gomorrah didn't see those miracles. The point our Lord is making is that greater revelation brings greater responsibility and brings greater accountability. And so those who had seen the Lord witness His miracles and had come to reject Him are going to suffer a greater condemnation than even Sodom and Gomorrah. Levels of punishment in hell. Let's go on. The same is true of levels of blessing in the millennium. And I define levels of blessing as levels of responsibility. So if you were to ask me, well, what do you mean there's levels of blessing in the kingdom age? Well, what I mean by that is that levels of responsibility, greater and lesser, lesser levels of responsibility. That's what I mean. Uh, you might recall in Luke 19, the parable of the talents. You know, one was given ten, one was given five, one was given one. The ten was faithful, received ten more. The five was faithful, received five more. The one was unfaithful. The one he received was taken from him and given to another. 
I'm assuming levels of blessing at his levels of uh, responsibility in, uh, in the kingdom. So I say here, the very fact that rewards are distributed at the judgment seat of Christ and that there are those who suffer the loss of, of such seems to demand varying levels of blessing for believers in the coming kingdom. Assuming the millennial kingdom foreshadows what takes place in the new heavens and earth of the eternal state, the implication is that there are also levels of blessing in the eternal state. So that's my answer based on those passages. Uh, let's turn to uh, what about crowns for Christians? I'm going to skip this section, not because it's not important, but we only have so much time and I've got to, I've got to skip something. So we're going to skip this one, but you've got my answer there. So let's go down to what about hidden sins? Is the judgment seat of Christ an occasion where hidden sins are revealed and where believers face shame? The biblical evidence indicates a yes answer. According to 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul states, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart, and then each one's praise will come from God. Parallel to this is Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, please note, whether good or bad. It was argued from 1 Corinthians 3, that the recompense regarding that which is bad involves specifically the loss of reward. In addition to these, 1 John 2.28, And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Now, follow what I say here. All true believers abide in Christ. That is, all true believers persevere in the faith and in faithfulness or good works. But notice what I add. Not all believers do so to the same level of success. Therefore, the feeling of remorse, regret, and even shame cannot be avoided at the judgment seat of Christ as believers' works are judged and evaluated. Now, having said that, at the same time, these will not be the controlling emotions at this event or in the kingdom or in the eternal state. The overwhelming emotions throughout will be those of gratitude and joy. We're at the conclusion, and I've got five minutes to get there, and I will open it up for questions in case you might have a question or two. Conclusion. From all of this, we can conclude that the judgment seat of Christ is a serious matter. It reminds us of the importance and necessity of faithful living, as we will certainly give an account of our lives and service on that day before an omniscient and holy Christ. At the same time, the coming of our Lord is a blessed hope. We will receive our resurrected bodies in which sin no longer dwells. Friends, I am looking forward to that day with every fiber of my being. 
a resurrection body in which sin no longer dwells. I hate my sin. I love my Savior. I hate the person I am because of my sin. And I'm longing for that day when I will no longer have that sin that is dwelling within and against which I fight. We will stand glorified before Christ without fear of condemnation or punishment. Our Lord has once for all borne the guilt of our sins and has paid forever the full penalty of God's wrath for us. Above all, it will be a time of joy and rejoicing in the grace and goodness of God in saving us and giving us eternal life. The judgment seat of Christ may be compared to a commencement ceremony, graduation ceremony. At graduation, there is some measure of disappointment and perhaps even remorse that one did not do better and work harder. However, at such an event, the overwhelming emotion is joy, not remorse. The graduates do not leave the auditorium weeping because they did not earn better grades. Rather, they are thankful that they graduated and are grateful for all that has been accomplished. Let me illustrate that. I'm starting my 35th or 36th year in seminary education. I know I don't look nearly that old. (laughs) I've been to a lot of graduation ceremonies. Never once, not, not once, as a student walked across the platform weeping and wailing and gnashing teeth because they didn't do better. Not once. On every occasion, without exception, they're going across that platform rejoicing in the grace, goodness, and mercy of God. And that's exactly what will take place, my understanding, at the Bema Seat of Christ. You and I one day will give an account of every thought, of every word, of every deed as servants of Christ. And that's a sobering thought. It is a blessed hope. And we long for the Lord's return. Would it be today? But that thought motivates us to live for Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. I want to be faithful. And I know you want to be faithful. And these passages are designed specifically to stir our hearts to be faithful servants of the Most High God. I've got one minute. Anybody have a question?